So yesterday, in, we have a freshman Bible study on Mondays at 5, and yesterday during our freshman Bible study, we talked a little bit about courtroom dramas, that we love courtroom movies. Um, and this got me thinking, um, my favorite, I think one of the, probably a lot of people's favorites courtroom, courtroom drama um, is uh, A Few Good Men. Have you all seen A Few Good Men? So some of people have seen A Few Good, Few Good Men. It's Jack Nichols, Jack Nicholas, not Jack Nicholas, Jack Nicholson. Which one's the golfer? Jack Nicholson's the actor, right? Okay. So Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, and there's this famous scene where they're in the court, and, um, and Jack Nicholson looks at Tom Cruise and says, do you want justice? And he says, no, I want the truth. You know, Jack Nicholson yells anger, you can't handle the truth. And it's this amazing scene because um, uh, Tom Cruise is able to get Jack Nicholson, um, Colonel Jessup, to to admit his wrongdoing, um, and we see then justice served. And the thing that we love about courtroom dramas um, is that it's about justice, right? It's about getting justice. And it's also about uncovering truth. Um, it's about vindicating the innocent and condemning the guilty. Um, and this is why some of us are so fascinated with WikiLeaks. I don't know if this is something that you follow, but WikiLeaks is this, you know, Julian Assange, uh, I don't know how to spell his last name, pronounce the last name. Assange, something, uh, Assange. So he uh, and his work of uncovering all of these government secrets and then publishing them. And some, to some people, he is a hero, and to some other people, he's a villain. But one thing that he's doing, he's taking things that are in the dark and he's bringing them to light. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. A lot of people are fascinated with this. And um, it's because it's those people who are above the law are having their laundry aired in a public forum which is like outside of the law. And so I don't know if you heard this fall, this new WikiLeak dump was announced that they were going to release all this data. And there was lots of fear. Um, and some of the stuff that I read, I, there are people writing out of fear, what are they going to say? Am I myself going to be somehow exposed? Um, there's this nervousness that people had about being found out, fearful that the things that they had done in secret on the Internet were going to become public. Um, scared to be found out. So the beginning of this month, the New Yorker read, uh, ran an op-ed, um, Colin Stokes, who's on the editorial staff of the New Yorker, and he wrote this sort of funny um, piece in response to this fear. And here are a few things that he said. Um, he said, Julian Assange has promised to leak a mysterious cachet of sensitive documents over the next 10 weeks. So I have made the decision to openly admit some things about myself in case any of my private information is released. Even though my weight fluctuates between 100 and 51 and 156 pounds. I always type 151 on the electric exercise equipment. These are his confessions. Uh, when I was a teenager, I would smoke cigarettes on the balcony outside my family's living room. And I got caught a bunch of times because it was totally obvious, but I kept on doing it. Uh, he goes on, sometimes I'm on Twitter on my desktop and it will say one new tweet and I'll click on it. Um, when I was a toddler, I didn't yet understand the concept of stealing. I stole an eraser from my local newsstand. My mother made me apologize and return it. I cried a lot. Um, th this one, uh, perhaps um, more revealing, he talks about the first time he looked at pornography. He said, it wasn't intentional. I was on my family computer, and it was loading very slowly. And in anger, I typed into Google something like, my computer is a big butt, and it got pornographic results. And my parents found out, and I couldn't uh, articulate the sequence of events clearly, so I falsely admitted that I've been looking at photos of big butts. So sort of silly, right? Um, but it reveals this tension that we all feel. 
Uh, right? We love the courtroom drama, the seeking truth, the uncovering, seeking justice and uncovering truth, condemning the guilty, as long as it isn't me. Right? We love seeing the drama as long as it isn't me. And if you're anything like the, the author of this article, you know that in his authenticity, in his honesty, he's still hiding. There are things that he is terrified of having exposed. And you know this because you and I are no different. We all have this deep fear that if the secrets were to be exposed, the hidden things made known, if we were known in the places we were most terrified of being known, our fear is that we would be rejected. We would be judged and then rejected. So this semester, we're reading the Gospel of John together, and we're doing this so that we might see Jesus in the Gospel of John, and and by seeing Jesus, see the very character of God. And so, as Will read for us, um, we are in John 8 tonight. And in John 8, we are brought into this courtroom of judgment, and we see three trials here. And what we're going to see together as we look at this, hopefully, is that Jesus takes this courtroom of judgment and he transforms it into a courtyard of love. So I want to begin by just setting the scene for us, what it is that happens in this passage. So Jesus is teaching in the temple, and this large crowd of people gathers around him and are listening to him teach. And without warning, Jesus' classroom is hijacked into a courtroom. A group of men, we're told are scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they burst in while Jesus is sitting, and they're dragging a woman perhaps half-naked, perhaps by the hair, dragging her towards Jesus. And then they say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now why are they doing this? They're not doing it um, because they're concerned about the law, but rather because they want to put Jesus to the test, to discredit him, to destroy his reputation. These leaders had watched Jesus, and they had listened to him preach, and they'd seen him drinking with sinners. They'd seen, by his presence, accepting those whom the religious establishment had rejected. Right? It is Jesus himself who said, I come for the sick, not those who are well. And yet here at the temple, at the center of religious life for all of Judaism, he is teaching with authority. And the authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees, are trying to get him to contradict himself. So here's the trap. If Jesus says now that this woman should be forgiven or let off the hook, then he's going against the law of Moses. But if, on the other hand, he says that the law should be followed, then this woman will be stoned and put to death. And everything that Jesus has said about forgiveness up to this point will be contradicted. If Jesus contradicts himself or if he goes against the law, um, he cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be the promised rescuer of the world. So how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Excuse me. Um, he is silent. He bends down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. And they continue. They, they badger him. They say, teacher, what do you say? And Jesus stands up and he says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down again and writes on the ground some more. But the men hearing Jesus went away one by one beginning with the eldest, because by tradition it was the eldest who threw the first stone. And so in this scene, we see these three trials taking place. The trial of the woman, the trial of Jesus, and then the trial of these men. So first, the trial of the woman. Should she be stoned? Well, what do we know about this woman? 
She's been caught in the, in the act of adultery, which tells us two things. First, um, that she and a man who is not her husband were breaking the law given by God to his people through Moses. In Deuteronomy 22, it says that if a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Both the man and the woman who are caught in adultery should die. Now, this seems overboard for us. Um, it seems overboard because of how low our view of sex is. Our cultural view, our culture tells us that sex is nothing. Sex is something you can give away, use as social currency. It exists for your self-gratification. That's not the view of the Bible. Um, sex is the language between husband and wife. It is the most intimate act and also the most powerful act. And it reveals deep mysteries about God's love for his people. One of the primary metaphors in the Bible for God's love for his people is marriage. And one of the primary pictures of God's, of the, of the people's disobedience is adultery. Sex is sacred because within a marriage covenant, it is the most intimate and honest language of love. And it points us to God's intimate covenantal love that he has for his people. So first, the woman being caught in the act of adultery shows us that she's breaking the law of God, which is punishable by death. But second, it shows us that she was set up. Because we're left with two questions here. First, how did the Pharisees know what she was doing? And second, where's the guy? Right? It takes two to tango. And this woman is then put on trial by these men. I want you to, with me to imagine her for a moment. Imagine her fear. Caught in the act, dragged into the temple court. They talk of stoning her, killing her. Will her children, will her, will her husband find out? Can you imagine the guilt and the shame and the fear of death that she's filled with? So that's the first trial is the woman. The second trial is Jesus. And we've talked about this a little bit. Jesus is put on trial by the Pharisees. This trap with the intention of getting him to con contradict or discredit himself. And they're trying to force Jesus into a choice. Either he can affirm and uphold the law of Moses, signing the woman's death warrant, or he can deny the law and tell them that adultery isn't that bad, that the law isn't that important, and discredit himself in front of the people as a prophet. And then that leads us to the third trial, which is the trial of the men. So Jesus doesn't play into their false choice. Their trap, but rather Jesus actually elevates the law. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell them that they shouldn't stone her, that she shouldn't die because of her sin. Look at verse 7. He says, Go ahead and stone her. You who are without sin, you throw the first stone. And what Jesus is doing is that he's taking the barrel of the law, which the Pharisees have squarely aimed at the woman, and he turns it so it's pointed at themselves. And seeing the glint off the barrel, they lower the gun, drop the stones, and walk away. And so we see Jesus, the one whose classroom was hijacked into a courtroom of judge, judgment. And in Jesus, we see this courtroom of judgment transformed into a courtyard of love. So I want for a moment you to consider the courtrooms of judgment that you inhabit. What are the, what are the places of judgment? What are the courtrooms of judgment that you inhabit? Where in your life do you feel like you're on trial? Often, the answer to this are the places where we feel like we're not enough. So maybe it's in the classroom. I'm not smart enough. I'm not intellectual enough. I'm not nonchalant enough. I'm not busy enough. 
Or maybe it's your personality. You feel, I'm not funny enough, I'm not cool enough, I'm not interesting enough. Or maybe it's your image, I'm not well-dressed enough, I'm not thin enough, or I'm not muscular enough. Or maybe if you're a Christian, it's your faith. I'm not on fire for God enough. I'm not good enough as a Christian. I'm just not enough. Last spring, I met with um, a student, one of you, and uh, he said this. He said, I get so angry, angry at myself. When I say something in class and my professor misunderstands me or when things don't go the way I want them to, I get angry and then I work harder. I guess this is because I feel like I'm not enough. And friends, this is the language of shame. Shame tells us you are not enough. Right? This is something that we all know. We all know this feeling of I am not enough. So where does shame come from? Well, the Bible tells us a story and it teaches us that in the beginning was God and that in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no shame. But rather there is complete and perfect vulnerability that manifests itself in self-giving, other-centered love. And this God created all things in glory and in love. And God made humans in his image, created to be known by God, to be loved in this triune love of creation. Like newborns on their mother's breast, skin to skin, this is how God made us to be. And at the end of creation, in the chorus of God's declaration of the goodness, we're told that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were made, completed by God, vulnerable. So vulnerability is not something that we choose or something that is true in any given moment, while at other times it's not. Rather, it's something that we are. We are vulnerable. Andy Crouch, in his book, The Strong and the Weak, writes this. He says, of all the creatures in the world, only humans can be naked. By adulthood, every other creature naturally possesses whatever fur or scales or hide are necessary to protect it from its environments. Only human beings live our entire lives able to return to a state that renders us uniquely vulnerable, not just to nature, but vulnerable to one another. We're vulnerable. So our first parents stepped into their world, this flowering garden of their maker's love, and rather than finding their life in God, they ate the one thing that was not given to them in love. They saw and they took and ate in disobedience, seeking their good away from and apart from their God. And in Genesis 3, we're told that the result is that they knew they were naked. And through the catastrophe of their sin, the world was flooded with shame and guilt and death. And so, the world became a courtroom of judgment. And since that day in the garden, human history and the story of the Bible records life in that courtroom. The shame of not feeling enough. The guilt of our disobedience. And ultimately, death. And here in our passage tonight, you can imagine the the courtroom of judgment that this woman inhabited. She was an adulteress. She had broken God's holy law and knew that the punishment was death by stoning. Her internal monologue might have been, I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. Then she's dragged into public to be shamed as a spectacle before Jesus and anyone else who's looking, naked and exposed. How do you think her shame affected how she saw God? The religious leaders, the good Christian folk, they were the ones who dragged her in front of Jesus. How do you think they affected how she saw God? Maybe she was thinking something like, if God is anything like them, 
there's no way that God would ever love someone like me. And while most of us aren't that blunt with ourselves, that phrase, if God is anything like them, then um, there's no way he'd ever love me. The way that we talk to ourselves does reveal how we think God sees us. Think about the way that you walk through the courtrooms of judgment here at Wake. What is your internal monologue? Is it, I'm not enough, not good enough, not Christian enough, not pretty enough, not witty enough, not busy enough? I want us to see now how Jesus responds to us in our shame. What do you think Jesus has to say to you in your shame? Think about it. What do you think Jesus would say to you in your monologue of, I am not enough? Look with me at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. In fact, he offers the first stone to whoever is without sin. He doesn't excuse her sin. He forgives it. The accusers are gone, and all that is left is this woman and Jesus who loves her. And we see here the courtroom of judgment flower into a courtyard of love through the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the work that Christ does in the world. He transforms our courtyards, our courtrooms of judgment that you inhabit into courtyards of, courtyards of love through his grace. I just want to briefly tell you one story of how he's done this in my own life. Um, some of you know the story. My senior year of college, I went to Tulane in New Orleans. I'm from Virginia. My senior year of college, Hurricane Katrina hit. And so Tulane shut down. This is the fall of 2005. Tulane shut down, and I went home to Charlottesville, to University of Virginia for the semester. And when I got there, um, I had this framework that I was just supposed to count my blessings, right? At least I didn't lose as much as everyone else. Everything I owned was under three feet of water. But at least I didn't lose as much as other people. I was only 21. I only had so much stuff. But this, the way that I had approached my trauma was just to say, it wasn't that bad. Other people had it worse. And there was a pastor in Charlottesville um, who I knew, who I went to his church and um, and he saw me and saw this in me and um, started meeting with me regularly. And um, we would get together and he'd ask me how I was doing. And I would say, oh, I'm fine. Uh, how are you doing? And, um, and I was just, I just had this wall up. Um, but as the semester went on, um, I started confessing sin to him. Um, and I was terrified because up until this point, every time that I confessed sin to an older man, he'd always said something like, well, come on, John, you know better. And my response was like, well, of course I know better. That's why I'm confessing it to you. Um, but still, that was the response. Um, but when I confessed my sin to this pastor, he responded with forgiveness and with grace. Um, and so there's this one, I guess it was a Wednesday morning, and I was at the end of my rope. And for whatever reason, I went and ran wind sprints. Um, just trying to exhaust myself, trying to, to do something to myself because I, I couldn't handle the, the trauma of the city I lived in being underwater and not actually dealing with this. And so I went and met with this pastor, and he asked me how I was doing, and I said, not good. And he said, good, I want you lower. I thought, you can't say that. You're a pastor. Um, but in effect, what he was saying was, I want you to be honest. I want you to... to be honest with me, not only just about this, but all the places in your life where you feel that you're not enough, all the courtyards of judgment in which you live. 
And as I did that, as I trusted myself to him and continued to hear the words of grace um, that came to him through, or through him from Jesus, I was transformed. Um, the power of knowing and being known in the places where I was most terrified of being rejected um, transformed me, transformed what was then shame into joy. So why does this have such power? Um, because it's anchored in the life of God. In the Trinity, we see something that we must pay attention to. That in this eternal relationship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God does not leave. The loving relationship shared between our triune God is the ground on which all other models of life exist and rest. In this relationship of self-giving, vulnerable, and joyful love, shame has no oxygen to breathe. And we see that it's out of that relationship that Jesus meets this woman. So we see in verse, verse 1 that Jesus retreats to the mountain to pray. That's what he's doing. He's going to commune with his Father through the Spirit so that when he comes to this woman, that's what he's extending to her. This love that he has with his Father and with the Spirit. And so finally, we're left with this question, how? How does Jesus transform the courtyard of judgment into, sorry, the courtroom of judgment into the courtyard of love? And the answer is that it's by the blood of his cross. Because Jesus experienced the condemnation that she and you and I deserve for our sin. So that every Christian, every person with faith in Christ can claim the words of Romans 8.1 for themselves. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the only one who is ever without sin... The one who was bound by the law of Moses to throw the first stone and execute this woman for her sin. Instead, he pulled the barrel towards his own chest to receive the full weight, both barrels, the full punishment for her sin and your sin and my sin. It's through Jesus' death and resurrection that the courtyards of judgment in this world are transformed into courtyards of love. That the very place where you experience the most crippling shame can become the place where you know the delight of Jesus for you. And friends, you live in a world and on a campus where your neighbors know nothing of this love. Friends, your, your neighbors know nothing of this love. Every day they are on trial. Every day they live under the weight of this judgment. Can you imagine? Just can you imagine what if, what if your dorm room or your lunch table or your study group was no longer a place haunted by I'm not enough, but became a place of there is no condemnation. Friends, go away with Jesus. Let him transform your shame that courtyards of love may flower inside your very soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of love and that in Christ um, you have loved us to do this work of taking the places where we experience the most shame and transforming them into places where you dwell in love. Or would you help us to believe this, to trust you, um, and that through us knowing you in this way, to make this campus a place um, that is beautiful, where people can know um, that there is no condemnation in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.